Shalom. Thank you for listening to this podcast. I am Shmuley Yanklowitz, President and Dean of Valley Beit Midrash. Here at VBM, we strive to bring you only the highest quality of Jewish learning. Bringing pluralistic and innovative Jewish programming to the Jewish community that craves substance and insight is our passion. But we cannot do it alone. To support our endeavors, please consider donating a tax-deductible contribution to our organization. By doing so, you will be supporting meaningful Jewish educational content, funding the next generation of leaders, as well as furthering Jewish wisdom to people all over the country and all over the world. Please visit www.valleybatemadrash.org. Thank you so much and enjoy the program. Shalom Hebra, it's a delight to be here with Joey Rosenfeld, who is a practicing psychotherapist currently working as a director of spirituality at the Harris House Foundation for Substance Abuse Treatment. Joey's main interest is the interface between psychology, philosophy, and spirituality. With a primary focus on addiction, Joey attempts to uncover the philosophical themes underlying the addictive phenomenon and all its facets. He's working on a new exciting book, Entering the Sea of Wisdom, an introduction to the Kabbalistic thought of Yitzchak Meir Morgenstern. He lives in St. Louis, Missouri with his wife, Alana, and their four children. Thank you so much for taking time to talk. Please, it's a pleasure. So let's start with anxiety. Um, how, how common do you think anxiety is to the human experience? So, so when responding to the question about the nature of anxiety, um, as a therapist, it's important always to set up a very important distinction between the clinical diagnosis of an anxiety disorder versus the underlying aspect of the human condition, which is a form of anxiety. So what I typically respond to clients when discussing anxiety is that it's not a question of whether we have anxiety or not, that's a given. It's a question of to what degree does the anxiety interrupt with your daily functionality. At the point that anxiety begins to interrupt in one's daily functioning, so that's when we begin to discuss the language of pathology or diagnosis and medication, et cetera. But what I'm more interested in is the ground level of the experience of anxiety, which I feel is constitutive to the very nature of the human condition in the sense that on a certain level, we all walk around with an unexplainable sense of longing towards something that is not yet present or a particular anticipatory fear of what comes next. And the fact that we're lacking things, or the fact that we feel that things are missing, or the fact that we can't lay claim to what the future will bring, gives birth to a very natural feeling of angst and and a fear of what comes next. The more and more things speed up, and the more we're exposed to the stuttering of the foundations of existence and the world and culture and everything that we know of, I think the more and more we're allowing ourselves to become aware of that very basic experience that rests at the core of ourselves, at the constitution of ourselves. So I think it's fair to say that most of our thinking, most of our faith, most of our attempts to lay claim to order in the world are ways of dealing with the very kernel of anxiety that rests at the core of who we are. Mm, very interesting. So naturally, people who are seeking comfort um, can find themselves in places of unhealthy addictions. And how does the Torah inform how we might think about that path? Because naturally, we want to reduce suffering. Um, and also, we know there's unhealthy ways to reduce suffering. Mm-hmm. So I think that 
addiction writ in kind of scare quotes, because again, we're not speaking of the diagnosis of addiction, but rather the phenomenon of addiction in all of its facets, which on a certain level, I like to speak of the potential towards addiction, which is a space that all human beings live in. So whether or not we've engaged in substances for mind altering purposes or for a maladaptive relationship to anything that offers comfort, on a certain level, we also are all familiar with what it means to be connected to something in spite of negative consequences for the sake of the artificial sense of comfort that it offers. So the first thing that I think is most important in discussing a Torah perspective or a, a mindful approach to addiction is that the stigmatization that sees the addict or the alcoholic or somebody with this pathology as being something unreasonable needs to be thrown away because being alive is enough of a reason for a person to become an addict. That's enough of a reality. The pain of being human is enough of a reason for a person to seek comfort in other places. But like we said earlier in response to the anxiety question, anxiety is an awareness of a lack that the human being experiences. Not a lack that is the result of something that is lost, but a lack that exists prior to even our knowledge of the concepts of fullness or fulfillability. So if the anxious person is someone who is aware of their lack, the addict is someone who is hyper aware of that lack. And because they are hyper aware of it for whatever genetic predisposition or you know, nature and nurture that have influenced those stances, the addict or the alcoholic or the potential addict is someone who is so profoundly aware of that lack that they need to try and fill it. And when a person tries normal substance, which I think is a really important word that is used to describe mind-altering chemicals, we try with food, we try with relationships, we try with money and the desire for honor. And for those people who are especially sensitive to that lack, those things leave us wanting. They leave us unsatisfied until a person discovers kind of, for example, a mind-altering substance, which at the moment that a person engages with it, they experience an artificial, albeit real moment of fullness. The rational thing at that point is not to say, oh, I'm never going to do that again. The rational thing to say at that point is I have found victory and I will engage with it and connect to it for as long as I see I need it. So again, when that lack is so ever-present, when that awareness of brokenness is so ever-present and there's this substance that not only provides a moment of fullness, but euphoria and pleasure along with it, I think it's very reasonable for a person to find themselves stuck in the confines of those behaviors. Now, from a Torah-oriented perspective, one of the things we have to begin to attune ourselves to is that the lack that we feel as human beings, which gives birth to that conditionality of anxiety, which in certain situations gives birth to a need to find substantiality. Again, the word substance represents in the Spinoza sense, the most basic thing that human beings desire, substance. And substance abuse on a certain hermeneutical way of understanding it can be the desire to find some substance to our experience. The substance might be artificial, it might be toxic, but I believe deep down in the core, what we're seeking is substance with a capital S, meaning and purpose. 
what the Torah and our teachings can make us aware of is the fact that lack and deficiency is not a symptom of some primordial fall or lapse or original transgression, but rather it is very constitutive to the human experience, that we lack, therefore we are. Being a human being is being in a state of deficiency. And instead of trying to fill it with artificial objects or substances or ideas, I believe the, the Torah route out of addiction, which is not in contradistinction to a 12-step model or the other neurological or cognitive-based models, is teaching the subject or the individual to live not in spite of that lack, but through that lack, to learn how one's essential lack or their nukudat hachisaron, as the tzaddikim of Ishbitz and Radzin were described, is the very point of subjectivity through which a person is meant to cultivate their sense of being human. Mm. Very nice. Right. So uh, another way to frame that last bit might be not only to live with the lack, but to live with a yearning. Like a, a yearning feels like a deeply spiritual vehicle. Um, uh, well, I, I guess I guess maybe yearning can be problematic too. There are things that we ought to yearn for, and there's things that we ought to live with a lack without a yearning, right? So absolutely, there, there's actually an interesting teaching from the Balhasulam, uh, who's a remarkable, righteous individual who I feel very connected to, where he looks at the bracha that we make when we say Asher Yatsar, that after we identify the fact that there are miracles, quite literally every moment that the body is, is present, attunement to the body itself. And he says in that blessing, there are two expressions of lack. There are nikavim nikavim and halulim halulim. Mm. Nikavim can be roughly translated as orifices and halulim can be translated roughly as voided places. Now Sartre also speaks about this in being a nothingness as how the orifice is the first thing that a young child tries to fill. We put our fingers in our nose, in our mouth, in our ears, because the first entry into subjectivity is the desire to fill those deficiencies within us. But the Balhasulam points out that nikavim are holes or empty spaces within experience that are meant to be filled. And the yearning that is elicited out of that lack is meant to be satisfied. But then you have something called halulim, which are voided places within the person, where that yearning is not meant to be satisfied, but rather it's meant to cultivate a, a sense of yearning that cannot be satisfied. Mm -hmm. So yearning can be problematic if we're trying to satisfy unsatisfiable yearning, because even on a spiritual level, that, that becomes what we would describe as foreign worship or idolatry because the yearning for an infinite, if it can't be satisfied, a person may try and satisfy it with a measurable object. Right. But then there are certain forms of yearning that a person can satisfy, and if we mistakenly feel that they can never be satisfied, that can lead to unhealthy acts of asceticism or renunciation of the self or, yeah. or self-flagellation and things like that, which have been present in, in spiritual tendencies. Yeah. That, that connection is, is just awesome between the Baal Sulam and the Sartre and Asher Yatsar. So shkech on that. And since you brought asceticism up, you know, and since we're on the tail end of the yard site of the Nazir, I think he passed in the early 70s. So it's been uh, 50, almost 50 years. Yeah, 48 years. Uh, I wonder, you know, uh, he represents a form of asceticism, of course. But I wonder, like, it, how do you understand asceticism as an authentic uh, a Kabbalistic or Torah path, and how do you understand kind of 
joyful fullness and embracing with bracha the pleasures of this world and how do you think about the balance? So even before I answer this question, I'll have to say that anything I'll say in this topic is certainly going to be influenced by a teacher of mine, Elliot Wolfson, and his writings, um, as well as, you know, other tzaddikim and, and teachers who his books have allowed me access to. And, but, but really, in a philosophical sense, it's going to be a Nietzschean response that there's two ways of looking at self-renunciation or, or saying no to the self. There's one way in saying, I must say no to myself because I deserve punishment. I must say no to myself because through some Protestant ethic of sorts, I don't deserve to take pleasure in this world and therefore I must punish myself. Which I believe our tzaddikim tell us was a present real spiritual path. But when the Baal Shem Tov came along and Hasidic teachings began to express themselves throughout the world, that way of meeting God, so to speak, was transformed into finding God within physicality, within kind of attuning oneself to the, the present moment of pleasure. But there's another path of renunciation, which is still very present, which is not saying no because I can't say yes, but it's a saying no to oneself that is in truth a revelation of a deeper yes, that by asserting self-control and asserting a limit to the self and not allowing myself to just express myself in whatever form I would like to, what I am doing is I'm forcing myself to become more than I am at that present moment. I am awakening a limitation within the self, what the Rebbe Rashab, the fifth Lubavitcher Rebbe referred to as hitgabrus ha'atzmiut, uh, an intensification of the self, which has the capacity to affirmatively state, I will not engage in something. So it's a saying no, but at that moment, it's saying yes in a deeper way, almost to intimate that the pleasure that I truly seek is inaccessible. And therefore, the only way that I could access that pleasure is by the renunciation of pleasure. Beautiful. Yeah. Another way that this is expressed is by Yom Kippur. Yeah. Because on Yom Kippur, it's on the one hand, a day of asceticism. Yet on the other hand, it's the loftiest day in the Jewish calendar on a certain level. And what our tzaddikim, what the righteous teachers of the Torah describe is that it's a kiyum, or it's an affirmation of the pasuk lahachyosam bara'av, to satisfy them in their hunger, which can A, be read as a cause and effect. The Jewish people are hungry and God satisfies them with food. But on a, a different way, on a deeper level, lahachyosam bara'av, there is a satisfaction that emerges from the hunger itself. To be satisfied in the hunger and the thirst of the self is to be satisfied with a yearning that cannot be culminated. It can't find consummation. And I think that the Nazir HaKadosh, what he learns from his Rebbe, you know, the Nazir's entry into, into his relationship with Rav Kook, Rav Kook had a way of singing and finding his Tamidim. This happened with Rav Chalap as well. But the Nazir was in a hotel in, in Switzerland, and he was already exploring philosophical teachings in Basel, Switzerland. And he heard Rav Kook davening the Akedah. And he writes very beautifully, he says, the moment I heard that, I have found my Rebbe. But if we think about it for a second, what is the Akedah about? The Akedah is about this deep desire for Avram Avinu to fully manifest what he felt was cleaving to God and learning that the truest manifestation is actually saying no to oneself. The Medrash tells us that Avram said, Hashem, can I just do a little bit to be Makayim this mitzvah? Can I blemish Yitzchak? And Hashem said, no, I'll tishlach yadcha. 
that nukuda of al, that being able to say no to oneself, in spite of that natural tendency to move forward, is a place where a person accesses their deepest self. To end with just this answer, there's a statement that I use with my clients all the time. I just tell them that there was a psychologist in the land of Israel named Abraham Isaiah Karolitz. You know, they don't have to know that's Rav Avram Yoshua Karolitz, the Chazonish. But the Chazonish writes in his Sefer, Emuna Ubitachon, that there's only one general negative trait, which gives birth to all negative tendencies. And that is, Haznacha Sachayim Lazarem Hativi the abandonment of the self to the natural proclivity of life. Which means to say that when we can remove ourselves out of that flow, we are taking a stance as a human being and we are asserting ourselves even more and more. Okay. That's what I would say regarding asceticism. Amazing. Okay, just one last question getting us back on, on, um, uh, on the path of anxiety and addiction, which is... Um, with all this anxiety uh, uh, foundational to the human experience and, and, and the pain involved with just life, as you said, um, what do you see as some of the therapeutic possibilities? Uh, maybe, I mean, um, there's, there's many, but maybe you can highlight one or two. They're, they're, they're deep therapeutic possibilities that emerge from our Torah. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Um, so I'll give one example from Torah Shebech which will highlight how this is a foundational element to the entirety of Torah. And then I'll use a teaching from the inner tradition of what can roughly be described as Kabbalah or the Kabbalah of the Arizal Luriana Kabbalah. So what everybody points out is that the Torah begins with a base, right? Beratius, in the beginning. Now the base of Beratius, what our commentators point out is that it's the second letter. The first letter of the Aleph base is the Aleph, which represents the origin, the point of culmination of a process, reaching that alufo shal olam, that wondrous capacity of God. So then why doesn't the Torah begin with the first beginning? Why do we find ourselves always already after the origin? And what I believe that it represents is the idea that If a person approaches the spiritual path that Judaism lays out in front of an individual, which is both a psychological path and an embodiment of experience, if a person thinks that we can reach the Aleph and that's the purpose of creation, then we will always be resentful towards ourselves, towards our higher power and towards the world itself because everything in the world speaks duality and duplicitousness. And it doesn't give us access to that Aleph, to that unity. But what the Torah is telling us when it starts with Bayes is that it's okay that you can never fully reach the end. Because if you were able to fully reach the end, that would, on a certain level, equate infinitude with the finite. It would equate the human condition with the capacity to, so to speak, become godliness, which is something that is antithetical to our tradition, I believe, at the very core of it. So the fact that the Torah starts with the Bayes is telling us that it's okay that you won't reach the end result which means that you will perpetually be yearning to reach something that is inaccessible. And instead of becoming frustrated and resentful and angry and broken because of that unsatisfied yearning, learn how to cultivate the yearning that is born out of the fact that Hashem is one and Hashem is unified, but God speaks in unity, but human beings always already hear duality. And when we're able to recognize that that is the condition of what it means to human being, 
then yearning becomes the very vehicle through which we connect to God, as opposed to a handmaiden that we hope can be left aside when we reach culmination. And in the Kabbalistic teachings of the Arizal, I think this is the very starting point, right? You would expect in the mystical texts of any tradition to bespeak of glorious light or the possibility of true transcendence, et cetera, et cetera. But what we find when a person opens the books of the Arizal is the polar opposite. We find acts of self-contraction, so to speak, on behalf of God, that God removes himself. He engages in an act of tzimtzum. And then we encounter a secondary trauma, which is this cataclysmic shattering of the vessels, which teaches us that the very growth, the very birth point of reality is a constitutive trauma. It's a breaking apart that allows us to build our experience. And I think that this is why the Arizal, people don't pay attention very often to this because we associate the Arizal with Sfat. But the first place that the Arizal was Zoha to receive his teachings was when he sat in solitude in his Bodidus on the banks of the Nile River in Egypt. And the banks of the Nile River in our tradition is a place of concealment, it's a place of suffering, it's a place of brokenness. And it's specifically there that the Arizal was capable of uncovering the deepest secrets because there's no need for the inner interiority of Torah, interiority of Torah if a person feels satisfied with the exteriority of things. Right. Only a person who feels that things are broken on the surface forces themselves to dig even deeper. Mm, which is another read on, another read on why uh, Torah, Torah is given in the Midbar. Absolutely, right. the Sfasemes has an incredible teaching. He says the Midbar is a place of chisaron. It's a place of abject lack. And, and very simply, that's the only prerequisite to the Torah. You have to become aware of the fact that you are lacking. Right. That, is, that is the basic entryway into the light of Torah. Yeah. Beautiful, beautiful. So I give you the bracha, and I hope you'll give it back to me as we enter Elul later this week, which is that, that the, our tshuva, our tshuva um, not be filled with the pain of expectations of perfection or of, 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 of breaking away our limitations, but that our tshuva fill and strengthen our yearning, our yearning for growth and repair. The stronger the yearning, the stronger the capacity for tikkun. Um, Very beautiful. Yes. And it's a bracha received, and this has been a tremendous opportunity to kind of share a little bit of uh, what I believe the light of the tzaddikim are trying to teach us. And, um, you know, Rabbi Nassim, the main disciple of Rabbi Nachman, he came to Rabbi Nachman once, and Rabbi Nassim was not interested in drinking. But Rabbi Nachman wanted him to engage a little bit, so he poured him a l'chaim. And Rabbi Nassim agreed, I'll, I'll drink a l'chaim. And Rabbi Nachman poured him a tiny, tiny bit. And he looked at his Rebbe, he looked at Rabbi Nachman, and he basically with eyes of wonderment saying, what is this? And Rabbi Nachman announced in Yiddish, which I would fail at, he says, a little bit is also good. <laughs> because a little bit is sometimes all we can do because the infinite is contained in the infinitesimal. Mm-hmm. We should be zocha. Amen. Amen. Thanks so much. Okay, thank Friends, you. Be sure to check out uh, Joey Rosenfeld's awesome uh, podcast. What's the name of the podcast? Uh, it's Inward with Rabbi Joey Rosenfeld on the Shefa Podcast Network.